Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and I'm very excited about the conversation I've got coming up with you with Dr. Ian Drever. Ian is a consultant psychiatrist specializing in anxiety, depression, stress, and alcohol use, amongst other things. He has 23 years experience working both the NHS, but also privately, including the Priory Hospital in Woking. He writes for the Huffington Post and other sources of all about psychological well-being. Actually, I, I was looking for some quotes online and there were no shortage of them. And you're well quoted on Google. I went all the way up to page three and there were still loads of quotes. Ian is also the founder director of the Academy of Mental Fitness, which is online, but also based in Isha, Surrey. And that's really a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. I think there's a quote that I'd like to start with, Ian, if I may. Instead of waiting for the first signs of illness to occur, We can all learn new skills to prevent illness from arising in the first place and allow us to function at our best. This is what the concept of mental fitness is all about. That is a Mm. quote from you. And firstly, of course, let me welcome you to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk straight away because there's so much I want to cover and I know that you do as well. Let's talk directly about that concept of mental fitness. Where did that come from? So we all have levels of mental fitness, just as we have physical fitness, and all of us can be doing things to nurture both our physical and our mental fitness on a daily basis. And as a psychiatrist, you know, I worked for all those years seeing patients day after day, month after month, and what really struck me was the amount of illness, and the amount of illness which was as a result of people really soldiering on for months or years often Mm. with features of sort of the early warning features of of illness. But if they had addressed those features at an earlier stage, then we could have turned around their illness much sooner. So it got me thinking around the whole concept of how we manage our mental fitness and the fact that so many of these skills, which we can all benefit from, could be taught in schools or could be taught away from hospitals, away from clinics. We don't need to wait until people become ill before we provide them with tools to stay well. Mm. So just as we all kind of look after our physical fitness or should look after our physical fitness by doing relatively straightforward things, getting regular exercise, regular sleep, eating properly, there's no magic to any of that. And so it's the same really with our mental fitness. There isn't there isn't a magic to that, but it is a conscious process that all of us should be going through on pretty much a daily basis just to manage our well-being. Mm. And that's what the whole concept of, of mental fitness is about. And that's why I'm so passionate about it is just having seen the the fallout really of people who who just didn't have the skills to be able to manage their mental fitness and I uh, dealt with as you know my other colleagues did with the fallout of that. Has this been informed in any way by your own personal experience or has it been purely from from working with people over those 23 years that you've been practicing? It's both, I suppose. Um, certainly kind of working in the mental health field makes you acutely aware of your own well-being and i was able to pick up, for instance, features of anxiety. I'm a, I'm can be prone to worrying, can be prone to insomnia. That what I would see in other patients, I sometimes recognised in myself. But it was a very privileged position to be in, to be treating people, to be hearing their stories, to be hearing what it was that had led them to where they were 
at that time. Mm. And so inevitably, you can apply some of it to yourself and you can learn these skills and apply them in all kinds of situations. And, and that, that's why they're so great. I mean, these skills aren't something that should just be kept in the cupboard and only brought out when someone's really, quote, broken, but they can be deployed by all of us in our daily life and just make it part of natural life. So you don't even have to think about them. It just becomes natural. Yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant concept. You know, it's, um, I suppose the analogy of likening mental fitness to physical fitness has been much used. But the idea, what I really liked about what you do, and of course it was flagged to me by a client from, is it the Mad World article you wrote in January yeah. 2019, last month? Yeah. She, she just said, you know, this chat might be really interesting to interview and here we are. But what I liked about that article is it's very much around preventative rather than mm. responding. It's what can mm. we do in the same way that I suppose I go to the gym to do a number of things. It ticks a number of boxes, but one of them, I say gym, you know, I have an exercise routine blended with movement. And one of mm. the benefits of that is I'm strengthening my bones and the musculature around those bones for yeah. 20 years' time when I'm postmenopausal and estrogen levels plummet mm -hmm. to mitigate against the risk of falling, amongst many, many mm. other things that I'm doing it all for. And I love the idea that some of the things that we'll come to talk about can be used in the same way to mitigate against anxiety or depression or stress or anything else that might befall us mm -hmm. or might happen to us. So that's a principle I, I really love. But talk to me a bit more about that preventative element of it. How exactly does it work within your online academy or, or the physical location? Yeah, well, you've used the analogy there of, or talks about kind of strengthening your muscles. And just as kind of going to a gym will strengthen your muscles and your bones and help you develop that side of your bodily strength. So we can do something very similar with our thought processes. And we know, I mean, there's some really fascinating research that's been coming out that shows that the way that we think can physically determine the structure of our brains, which is an incredible thought. So that by mm. thinking certain ways, there are new connections created in the brain. There are new kind of circuits that are created by the cells linking together in certain ways. So if we think in healthy ways over and over again, then that can actually reinforce itself and that can become literally hardwired into the brain. But it also means that sort of unhelpful ways of thinking, if we're not careful, they can become hardwired into the brain. And often this happens at a very early stage, kind of early in life. We can inadvertently become wired with unhelpful ways of thinking. And we call those thought distortions. And they're often things like there's a classic one, catastrophization. So that's taking something which is kind of a problem, something that life throws at you, it's not great, but making it into an end of the world scenario and catastrophizing about it and mm. kind of thinking about all the what ifs. So those sorts of thought distortions can become hardwired in. But the good news is that when we recognize them and then we learn to think in different ways, the old, unhealthy ways of thinking slowly start to fade. They slowly start to break down. Those actual connections start to break down. Just like if we learn a foreign language and then we stop speaking that foreign language, with time it goes rusty and we stop, we kind of forget it. So it's the same when we're not using those unhealthy ways of thinking. They start to break down. We start to forget that, thank goodness. And then the new healthy ways of thinking which we learn can become hardwired in. And so that circuit becomes stronger and stronger, just as your muscles or your bones would become stronger and stronger by repeatedly performing an exercise at the gym. So you're actually literally working your mind out and getting physical, physical changes, which is, I mean, I should think that's incredible. And there's a chap in Toronto who's written a fantastic book about this, uh, Professor Norman Doidge, 
and he lays it all out. But I mean, this is really sort of cutting edge. They used to think that our brains were completely fixed by the time we reached puberty and sort of from the age of 20, kind of our brains were completely fixed and it was all downhill after that, but not so. And we know that right into later life, 60s, 70s, 80s, our brains are still adapting, still changing, still evolving, still rewiring. So that's super exciting. It is, yeah. What was the name of the author you just mentioned? Norman Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E. He's got a book that's right behind me. It's called The Brain That Changes Itself. It's from Toronto. He's a solid guy. Okay, Mm. we will link to that in the show Mm. notes, and I'm going to read that as well. The Mm. book I thought you might mention was Bruce Lipton's Biology of Belief. Have you read that? No, I haven't read that one, but that's interesting. Similar, well, a similar concept, at least on the face of it. I haven't read Mm -hmm. Biology of Belief yet either, but it it works on the basis that we can very much control some of the physical responses to the body through the mind. And I guess that's the placebo, nocebo effect, isn't it? Which I've talked about in a recent episode, placebo being I could give you a sugar pill and, or even actually the very act of coming to a doctor or psychologist or psychiatrist and being listened to can often have a very positive effect. And then if you sort of twin that with a sugar pill that you tell someone will immediately take away some of their pain, Mm. it often does, even though it's a sugar pill. The listening obviously is a valid thing, but the sugar pill is just a sugar pill. And then the nocebo, you know, this will make you worse. And indeed it, it then goes on to do so. I think the placebo, nocebo, but the whole if you like, the biology of belief or the power of belief is extraordinary. You know, placebo is probably one of the most undervalued remedies there is. It's almost associated with, exactly. well, it's only placebo, isn't it? I mean, it's almost a bit of witchcraftery about it, but hey, it's, it's extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, and doesn't it just underline the link between the mind and the body? And yeah. again, we don't really sort of understand this, but the link between kind of you know, what you think and how you actually physically feel is profound, really profound, mm. you know, huge huge link between the two. And this is kind of why the whole kind of disconnect between the mind and the body, it makes no sense because ultimately the mind and the body are one. It's all the same same system, same organization, same same body, and you know, same person, same human. But for so long, there's been this disconnect between on the one hand, the mental health, and the other, the physical health. But they're all part of the same. Yeah. Anyway, so I interrupted you, but you were telling us more about how the Academy of Mental Fitness worked. Yeah. So the concept is really to create, I suppose, a gym for the mind where we can create somewhere for people to mix, to mingle, to be well, an inspiring place really to live a life of purpose and to explore that everything everything that all of us can be. So we're about teaching people effective skills that they can use to navigate life effectively. We're about empowerment, curiosity, fitness. It's not about illness, and that's the huge change that I want to bring about. We hear a lot about mental health just now, which is good, but still when we hear those words, mental health, we actually think of mental illness rather than proper health. So the whole concept of the Academy of Mental Fitness is to, as I was saying, recognize that everyone has levels of mental fitness and there are things that we can do to look after that, to nurture that, to develop that further. We're about bringing together all of the knowledge which is already out there. There's a huge amount of knowledge already out there and our expert team has kind of filtered this down and presented it in, in, in enjoyable bite-sized chunks which people can incorporate into their lives without the stigma or without jargon, without psychobabble. I mean, so much of psychology is terminology and it can all feel a bit intimidating and a bit off-putting. Mm. But we just want to strip that down and just make it feel really aspirational, somewhere that people positively want to go to rather than something that feels off-putting or, oh, I've got to go to a clinic because my doctor tells me or because I'm broken or I'm bad enough to need treatment 
and that's something that we used to sometimes hear at the Priory, which is <laughs> terrible that people put things off because there is a, a real fear around it. Yeah, I've got lots of questions, actually. Who is it for? Is it for people who are well and want to stay well? Or do you also welcome people who are not well and wish to get better? It's for everyone. It's for everyone. But our focus would be on people who are well and want to stay well or people who have probably early signs of of something just not feeling right. And they may not actually have recognized that it's illness as such, which is brewing, but they may have noticed, for instance, that their sleep isn't quite as refreshing as it was, or they're taking an extra half an hour to get off to sleep at night. They may notice that their just appetite is, is not quite as good, they're not, not enjoying food in quite the same way. Socializing might be a bit more difficult than it was. They may notice that their concentration or their memory, just the edge has been lost on those, or that they're feeling a bit more lethargic and their energy levels are down a bit, or that their mood is sometimes a bit more wobbly or a bit more flat. But none of these features on their own may have sort of fully triggered the realization that there is an illness brewing or they need to do something about that. Mm. Because all of those features that I spoke about are sort of the early warning lights. And I use the analogy of a dashboard, really, where people, people's bodies will communicate with them and send them very clear messages that kind of something isn't right. But unless people actually recognize those warning lights, first of all, and then take action, to rectify things, then then the situation inevitably just gets worse and worse, where more of those warning lights will flash up and eventually more significant illness could arise. So I guess it's about finding people maybe in whom one or two of those warning lights may have flashed up, but they're not yet at the level where they're going to see their GP or going for treatment at somewhere like the Priory. Yeah. And I want to come back to those, those warning signs. But before that, I get how it might work online. But what does the physical environment look like? Can you paint a picture mm. for people? Yeah. So we're just off uh, the high street in Esher. And we're a nice little Victorian end of terrace house, which we have completely refurbished. We actually got an architect in. And as far as I know, it's the only purpose-built building in this country, which is specifically designed for what we're doing, treatment of sort of mild to moderate anxiety, depression, and and just creating this whole gym for people to live life to their best. So we've got a range of small treatment rooms, one-to-one treatment rooms, and also a couple of great group rooms, because we're really keen to create somewhere which feels like a haven, a sanctuary, somewhere which is very non-clinical. So throughout, I've been really clear not to use typical kind of clinical furnishings. So you won't see any hard, shiny white surfaces here. We've had dimmable lighting put in throughout. We've chosen color schemes, which are sort of soothing, relaxing, natural materials, got a little garden out in the back. So it's all about creating a real kind of haven, a sanctuary, someone that feels very safe and supportive without hard-edged kind of clinical feel. Yeah, love it. Let's come then to the warning signs. Mm. What I've observed is that people, and myself and people I've worked with and people I know, is that we tend to leave things until it becomes really quite critical mm-hmm. before we reach out for help or, or admit to ourselves that there may be a problem. It would be really helpful, I think, to talk through what those warning signs are at the early stage where you can catch things before yeah. they become more problematic. What are they in your experience? So there are a few. I mean, the big ones are typically mood. So if someone's mood dips below sort of five out of 10 for more than a few days, three, four, five days, then that's definitely your body giving you a signal. Hmm. And often I would just ask people to rate their mood on a scale of one to 10, one being absolutely the worst they've ever felt, 10 being life is perfect. And I think if anything is, is sort of five or less, then, then there's definitely something which is 
there's an alarm bell there and we just need to recognize what that is and to take action if, if that goes on for more than a few days. So mood is the, is the big one. And then also sort of closely behind that is energy levels. So people just feeling more lethargic, more run down, more kind of unable to engage with daily demands, whether those be personal demands or professional. Those are biggies. And then there are also a whole range of sort of supporting ones. So below the kind of the mood and the energy levels, there would be cognitive functioning. And that's really just a fancy term for a concentration and memory. So people notice that their memory, even for typically small things, just falls away a bit, sort of just forgetting well-known phone numbers or well-known pieces of information. Mm. That can be a warning sign and ability to concentrate sort of mind wandering and just not really staying focused. Those are pretty classic. And then in addition, socializing is a social withdrawal is another big one. So whereas someone might have been a little bit outgoing or kind of able to function in either social or work environments, that suddenly becomes more difficult. And just the thought of having to put on a mask and just be with other people, it just feels draining, feels unattractive. It just feels just like the last place they'd want to be. So any sort of social withdrawal is a very clear warning sign. And these are all actually quite protective features. These are features that the brain uses to protect its limited energy. And when kind of the brain recognizes, the mind recognizes that it's under too much stress, you actually start to pull back and you just shut down non-essential features like the memory, the concentration, the socialization. So whilst these can be distressing and upsetting at the time, it actually shows that things are working normally and that the dashboard is working normally. But we just need to recognize these signs when they arise. And then the last three are what we call the biological triad of sleep, disrupted sleep, disrupted appetite, and disrupted libido. So if the sleep of the appetite of the libido sexual drive is typically diminished, then again, those are very classic features that all is not well and that someone's under too much stress, too many demands, too much is going on. Yeah. I definitely recognize some of those in myself and in people that I've I've worked with. And some of those are quite extreme as well, aren't they? It's catching some of the things early on. What I thought was quite interesting is what you said about mood. If your mood is below five out of ten for four or five days. So that's mm-hmm. that's one that you can definitely catch fairly early on. Yeah, exactly. When we talked about this, when we, we had a conversation before this this recording, we also talked a bit about longevity. Do we know what the effect is on our longevity. And I suppose I'm talking specifically about health span mm-hmm. rather than the number of years in one's life, the number of healthy years in one's life. True. Do we know much about how stress, anxiety, depression can impact our overall health span? What does it cost us later in life? I think a lot really is the is the answer. And actually quite a body of research now which shows that particularly severe mental illness can have an impact on our overall health span equivalent to the smoking or to being heavily overweight or not getting exercise. I mean, it's a really major determinant in ill health. So that's big. And I think that as we're getting more data, it, it really just emphasizes that even more. There's also been some really interesting research around happiness and about how good social connections can be so supportive of good mental health and are a real predictor of longevity and overall health span. I think by the time this goes out, it'll be last week. I've recorded a solo episode about a book by Dan Brutner called The Blue Zones, which talks about the nine common traits mm. that he's observed. Do you know this book? Oh, his work. I've heard of the book. The, no, I, I know the Blue Zones, including Okinawa yeah. and Southern yeah. Italy and stuff. Yeah, mm. That's right. Sardinia, Okinawa, 
California, Greece, and Costa Rica. They're the five blue zones. Mm. And there are nine traits that Brutner and his team observed throughout these these locations. And the blue zones, by the way, for anyone listening who's wondering what that is, it's, they contain the highest amount of centarians in any one region. So the most people are living to 100. And social connections is one of those nine things. So they either, I think oh, one of them had happy hour, where they literally, all the old folk got together for an hour and they drank very moderately and they chatted and they shared the gossip and everything else, you know, unburdened themselves of problems. They all had a very strong sense of family. Most of them had a really strong faith-based community. Social connection was absolutely huge. And it's interesting you say that yeah. one of the signs of, of mental illness is when those social connections perhaps start to break down or we don't invest much into them and isolation is something that comes in more. What else do we know from, from your perspective about the impact of social connection on mental health and also on longevity of health span? Yeah, I think there's sort of a circular situation which can arise in that when people are feeling a bit low, a bit down, they become likely less inclined to go out and nurture their social network and maintaining a good quality social network isn't just a sort of static process. It's something that actually all of us need to do all of the time throughout life, just nurturing, maintaining, improving our connection with people around us. So that's a very active process. And when people aren't feeling great, that process can fall to one side. And then you get into a vicious circle where if there's then less social connection, people's mood can dip even further. So there can be a vicious cycle often created in patients where uh, low mood will lead to diminished social contact and then that leads to further low mood. So that's really important to catch it soon. And certainly kind of in my work in both the NHS and the Priory, that's where community outreach was so important, actually finding people in the community to take someone and to get them joined up to local associations, take them to the gym, just help them with putting those ideas into practice. It's all very well sitting with someone in the clinic and saying, well, why don't we do this or do that? But actually taking it into the real world and making it happen was one of the biggest blocks that I found and there was something that could be disempowered. And it's, it's, it's always nice to be able to have people to, to go that final mile. Mm. So that's the whole concept now of a lifestyle coach where they will actually help you know, literally take someone by the hand and say, right, let's do this today. Let's go out for a walk. Let's get you joined up to a gym. Let's do something. Let's get you some social connection. Let's devise a plan and implement it because it's often the implementation which is so lacking. We can think of the plans. We can do stuff in clinics. We can do stuff when we're sitting face-to-face with someone, but it's real-world implementation which can often be the, the weak point in the chain. Cool. Let's talk specifically about the Academy of Mental Fitness again. If somebody is interested... They're in fairly good health, but maybe there's a couple of flags that have gone up, interested in getting involved. What do they do? What's the process they follow? So it'd be really straightforward. It'd be giving us a call, 0345-112-300, or else okay. going onto our website. And we just got a little website and has gone live in the past few weeks. And that's AMF online. So AMF for Academy of Mental Fitness, AMF online, all one word, .co.uk. We're highlighting just now our anxiety management program because anxiety is really the most prevalent of all the mental health conditions. Mm. Whether people have depression, whether people have insomnia, there is almost always some anxiety which accompanies it. So we've put together a fantastic little program. It's just little bite-sized chunks. So it's every Friday evening, 90 minutes, once a week over four weeks. So it's a standalone four-week program just every Friday evening. We've actually got a PhD student from Roehampton. He is a fellow colleague of mine. He used to work at the Priory as well. 
has created a specific program for us just focused on the anxiety, little small group of up to six patients. So it's always very personal, very intimate. Uh, there's the space and the time able to properly interact with participants and to devise personalized strategies for them. So we help them understand what anxiety is, where it came from, how it arose, look at uh, strategies that can be used to minimize it, and then help people devise personalized strategies for putting all of that knowledge into place and for keeping it going. Because it's all very well to turn a condition around, but it's keeping it going and preventing Mm -hmm. relapse, which is also hugely important. Yeah. I mean, are there any other, I completely agree with that. I mean, consistency is absolutely key. It's it's, it's always Mm -hmm. the case. Are there any other things? I mean, we've only got a few minutes left, but that you would advise people to do both from a preventative, but also from a sort of a a cure, if you like, panacea perspective, Mm. that are good, positive things for mental health. I mean, I'll throw out a suggestion. So I found not just for mental health, but just for bandwidth to focus on things that actually matter a news ban was really valuable to me so about three years ago it was suggested to me that why don't you stop consuming news which i do so i don't buy anything i don't read anything i don't have any alerts set up of course people will tell me when something big has happened and i'll see it on twitter and i'll see it on my facebook feed so i'm not Mm -hmm. that far away from big breaking stories Mm -hmm. and i do look at sport news but other than that i don't consume any at all and that's been really good for focus for concentration and for well-being as well because most of it is fear it's drama it's propaganda it's shame i don't need to know about it but sometimes when i talk to people about breaking off from the news it's like Whoa, 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 but how would I know what was going on? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny one. But anyway, that's an example. Is there any, anything you would suggest people can do to mitigate poor mental health or to, to encourage good mental health? Yeah, so it's really interesting. You mentioned the whole concept of a news ban there. And it sounds to me like you're creating extra space in your life. You're sort of taking some of the clutter and some of the noise and some of the just the distraction, which don't add any particular value to your life and just saying, actually, I'm not going to give this space. I'm not going to give this time. I'm not going to give this mental energy. I'm going to remove that and just fill it with activities and content that matters to me. And in that sort of vein, I mean, there's the whole concept around digital detox, around how we interact with our phones, about how much time we spend in front of screens, about just the fact that we're so saturated with so much information now and never-ending messages that it can just be overwhelming. We were never designed. Humans were never sort of never evolved to cope with this much deluge of information. Completely agree. So I think that there's something around kind of whether or not you switch off the screens a couple of hours before bedtime, whether you have, I mean, there are all sorts of ways of sort of rationing your smartphone use. So that's perhaps one way forward. I mean, I'm one of the last people on the planet not to have a smartphone. I just have an old-fashioned brick, but it works for me. It really works. And when I need to send an email, I go to my desktop and I just do it. And you know, there's nothing in my life that is so important that it can't wait for half a day before yeah. I next log in. I just, yeah. I'm not that important just to need to, <laughs> to send emails out immediately and to have kind of them, them back to me straight away. So there's something around creating that space. And in this, the whole concept of space as well, there's mindfulness, which is really gaining traction now. And we hear a lot about it. And that is about just taking time to observe and just to be properly part of the world rather than 
buried in a screen or buried in a device and being oblivious to what's happening around us. So even if it's a case of just kind of a couple of stops on the train to work in the morning, just actually putting the device down and just looking out the window and just being present and just looking at the trees, looking at the seasons, looking at what's happening, there's something very powerful in that. And again, that's just building in a little bit of space into your life in a sort of sustainable, easy way, which just gives your brain, your whole system a chance to to do what it was designed to do, which is just to take stuff in, but not to be completely saturated with never-ending amounts of information. I completely agree that we weren't designed to deal with even a fraction of what we have to deal with now. And I really like Mm. the idea of going back to thinking about ancestral living and what that entailed. Now, I'm not suggesting we start, you know, living in caves and hunting or anything like that. But if we are going to, you know, we live in a modern world where there are all sorts of demands on our mental, physical and spiritual and emotional health. What can we do to fortify ourselves against a lot of that? We can do certain things like have newsband and screen time curfews, but also we need more than ever, I think, to focus on our own personal sustainability or in other words, our resilience. Yeah. So can we focus on sleep, mindfulness, positive mental health, looking after our bodies from a physical sense as well, all of those kind of things to better cope with the strains and the stresses and demands of modern life. And I think what yeah. you're doing there with the Academy of Mental Fitness is feeding into that. So I applaud you for the the idea and the implementation, more importantly. I have heard the idea before, but I have not yet seen anyone implement it. So congratulations on that. And Ian, unfortunately, we're up on time. But you've mentioned your website, which is amfonline.co.uk. Correct. So we'll link to that in the show notes. You've also read out the phone number. We will make sure we link to that in the show notes as well. Is there any other way people can contact you or, or anything else that you wanted to add to this discussion before we sign off? Not really. It's just been fascinating. And I think it's really captured what we're trying to do. And this is just such a huge and exciting and growing field. I feel it's really a privilege to be at the cutting edge and to be really tapping into something that is very much of, of the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all the best with it. We'll keep in touch. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much indeed, Leanne. Take care. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.